Oh, I unmute myself. Marcus Alcoholic. Thank you very much, Mark, for asking me to, to, to come here today. It's been a while, actually, since I shared like this. Um, I've been going to secular meetings for um, for since since COVID hit Thailand, I suppose, last February, like everybody else. Uh, I think I've been to one physical meeting since then where we had a space where we weren't on lockdown and I went to a new time a new meeting actually a new meeting for newcomers where there was five newcomers at the meeting it was lovely I got sober in nine the 9th of April 1993 in Mullingar um I was born in England in Manchester as Mark said I'm an Irishman but I'm kind of a half Irishman of Irish parents they, they my father was a builder and my mother helped in the business as well and when I was nine, they bought a farm in Ballymahan in uh, County Longford. So we moved to Ireland when I was nine. Uh, he kept the business until I was about 15 in, in Manchester. He used to go back and forth. And um, <laughs> when people say they had a, a, a kind of a funny upbringing, I had. Because I went from a society, I went from a school where school was something like it is today to a school where the Schlottin Drehter, the, the magic wand was used quite a lot. Um, and, and, and that terrified me. It absolutely terrified me that people got slapped. We, we, we went into the church, the local church in Forgany, if anybody heard of it, it's three miles from Ballymahan and uh, for, for confession. And uh, he was asking the other kids, did they ever steal, did they steal sugar? I mean, I used to put six spoons of sugar in my tea. So, I mean, I don't know why anybody would steal sugar. But anyway, that's what he was asking, seemingly, if you wanted to, you, you stole sugar at home, it was a sin. And um, it, the church, men were one side, women were the other side. Uh, I had five sisters and we came in late to mass once and the church, and the priest or Father Tommy looked down and he said, I see the women, are look, are, I think they're as good as the men now. So I, I went from a kind of what I called a kind of a normal society well, there was a lot of drinking in Manchester at the Irish club, but apart from that, to something completely alien to me, you know, and it absolutely terrified me. And um, I, I, I went to a school three miles away from where I lived, bypassing the local school. So I didn't even connect with the locals as much as I could have, because they, they considered me, as Mark said earlier, a kind of a snob because I hadn't gone to the local school. There was one classroom for eight classes. So they put me in a school where there was three classes for eight classes, uh, three classrooms for eight classes. Um, and then when I was 12, they sent me to boarding school for five years. So I always felt strange. And from the minute I went to boarding school at 12 or 13 years of age, I went with the kids that were smoking. I hadn't smoked up to then, but I found them. I found the kids that smoked. And when I was about 14 or 15, I started drinking and I found them as well. Um, so what, what I felt my, my father was a nice man. He did an awful lot for us. But he had a very bad temper. And when his business started to go bad, which it did when I was about 15, he took it out. a lot. He, he wasn't able to cope with it. And he took it out a lot on the family. And he used to call me like, I suppose, a lot of men in, in, in Ireland at the time were called good for nothing and never would amount to anything. And you're fucking useless and all the usual. You know, I've heard a lot of Irish men saying my age saying the same thing. It was just par for the course, what, what was said. So I couldn't please the man. I couldn't absolutely please my father. So what I could do, I had no control over him. I had no control over pleasing him. But what I found was when I was about 16, 17 years of age was I could decide what I was going to drink. 
I could decide to go out and get drunk, in other words, because I couldn't, once I started drinking at the weekend, I couldn't stop drinking until I was drunk or went into a blackout. But I could control when I was going to do that. That was something that was within my control. So um, there was times as well where I said I wouldn't drink until the weekend. And that was within my control because I couldn't, I wouldn't drink. But try and stop me drinking <laughs> at the weekend. I, I got a fabulous job when I was 19. I got a job as a trainee psychiatric nurse up in Grange Gorman, if anybody knows it, St. Brendan's Hospital. It's not there anymore. Um, uh, there was 1,300 patients, and I got a job as a trainee nurse, and it was absolutely fantastic. Money was, was great. Money was fantastic. Um, we, it wasn't like a, a general hospital nurse, trainee nurse, because they had to be in every evening by nine o'clock. They couldn't uh, fraternize with males. We, our nurses' home had males and females living in it. That, although it was on separate floors, we could, we could wander. We, we were treated as adults, whereas the general nurses were not. And we had great money. We had our own key to come in and go as we pleased. So I was free free of, of my parents, free of everybody else. And I had fantastic money. And God, did I spend it? God, did I spend it? Um, I, I went a bit crazy. I, I, I stayed in that job two and a half years and I failed my prelim three times. So they kicked me out. So I didn't qualify. But for the two and a half, for the first year it was fantastic because we, we had dances. We, 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 we went out with all the general nurses for discos. We had parties. We, it was fantastic. Um, and after, after about a year, I, I didn't go to as many parties. I went to a pub that was for old men. I, I was telling, I think I was telling Mark last week that the local bar I, I drank in, the nurses sat at the front of the bar, at, at the front as you went in on the left. The locals were next, and then the patients were down the back. And we often drank ourselves to a stupor where we fell asleep at the bar like that. And we'd wake up an hour later, and the barman would put a pint in front of us. To, to welcome us back to reality. And we thought we were the people who were looking after the patients. I, um, you know, I, I could tell lots of stories about that, that hospital, about things that were done uh, by me and by others that should never have been done. We should never have been in charge of patients because we weren't capable of being in charge of patients. A lot of us, I used to think nearly everybody was an alcoholic in the place, but I'd say about 20% of us was. You know, and and we, we shouldn't have been there because we weren't capable of looking after those people. And um, when when I, when I while I was there, I got a loan for a car for a Fiesta. My my second car, my first car was a heap of junk. I got a loan of a car, a loan to to buy a Fiesta, which was a nice car at the time. My father went guarantor, and within about a month or two months after two and a half months being there. I had smashed that car into pieces. I hadn't kept up the repayments and I lost my driving's license for drunken driving in 1980 when it was nearly impossible to uh, lose your license in Ireland. And, and that's what it was like. And I had to, I, I went back to my parents' house, the farm at the time, with my tail behind my, I, I had no money, I had nothing. And I went and I went on the dole for about six months until it, I, I ended up fighting with my father. Well, I didn't fight with him. He just bet the fuck out of me because I told him to, and he did. And uh, I left. And, and uh, anyway, to cut a long story short, um, that was the worst period of my drinking, that three years, because I had unlimited money, basically, and freedom. And, um, you know, it, 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 that was the worst. And then 
I got a job as a barman, an apprentice barman. And after that, after about a year or two years, I got a job as a barman in a hotel in Mullingar. And then I got head barman um, in, in, a, in, in a bar a hotel, the Greville Arms, if anybody knows it. And they were opening up Stringfellas Nightclub at the time, which was the biggest nightclub within a hundred mile radius. And I was the head barman there. And, um, and I, I was controlling my drinking. Nobody in that hotel saw me drunk. I would close that bar at four in the morning, the, the nightclub, or I'd close the other bar at uh, 12 or half 12 at night. And, bef- and I'd get all the staff out. And before I'd leave that bar, I'd have about six shorts of brandy or vodka or maybe eight. And I'd bring a couple of pints with me with four or five brandies in it so I could get drunk without anybody seeing me. You know, um, so they never. So I was controlling it in that regard. I, I went into business afterwards. I, I married a girl and I got into the, their business and I got shares in it and I'd done very, very well. But I was still out of control drinking at the weekend and at other times. But I was controlling it more than I had before. Um, my last drunk was not that bad. My last drunk was not as bad as any of the drunks before. I, I, I went out. I got drunk. Uh, not too badly drunk. I remember coming home. I remember going to bed. And the next day, my wife was like a briar. She, um, she told me I'd, she had to stay up all night, stopping me from pissing in the wardrobe, from pissing at the door, from walking around outside naked. She had to do all these things, and I don't remember a thing about it. I must have been gone in. I don't know, gone in. Because what I used to do was I'd, I'd go out to that bar across the road, and I'd drink about eight or nine shorts, and I'd have about five or six pints, which was a normal, you know, that wasn't big drinking. And then on the way home, in the garden, I'd have a bottle of whiskey hid and I'd drink most of that before I went into the house. So the people in the bar would not see me drunk. And uh, so I'd, I'd be OK going in the door, but of course that drink would hit me later. And then I'd go into the stupor. So I decided to go to AA. I told her I'd go to AA. A lot has happened in between that, but there just isn't the time to. Most people know what I, I mean. I crashed a car, that car that I'm talking about. I've crashed another car. I'd gone over the canal bridge in Athlone, if anybody knows it. I'd wrecked the car. The right guy that was with me broke his leg in four different places. I, I, <laughs> I walked out of it, you know. Um, so lots have happened, things like that. But anyway, at this stage, I was controlling my drinking to the extent that I could hold down a job. I had a house, I had two cars, I had three kids, I had a wife. Uh, but I went to AA and I went to a psychiatric hospital at St. Lomans, I think it's called, in Mullingar for my first meeting. And I went in and I think I'll share this. That I went in and there was about 50 people there, about 30 patients and about 20 uh, people from Mullingar. And there was a guy called Charlie sharing. I might, some of you might have heard this before, but he was doing the chair like I'm doing today. And what he shared, I couldn't believe. What he said was, he said, he... He had been trying to control his drinking, that he'd only drink at the weekend. And that's exactly what I had been doing at the time. And then he said he had children. And he used to lay awake during the week because you couldn't sleep when you didn't have drink. And that was the same for me. When I hadn't drink during the week, I didn't sleep. And when I was drinking, I didn't sleep either. I went into a stupor. But he said when he, when he was lying there during the week, he used to, his mind would wander. And he used to think, if any of his children ever died, He hoped, well, he didn't hope any of them would die, but he hoped if they did die, God forbid, as he said himself, God forbid that they die on a Monday. Because if your child died on a Monday, nobody would begrudge you a drink. You'd be allowed to have a drink. You wouldn't have to wait till the weekend. Nobody could say a word to you. Your son or your daughter had died. And on the Tuesday, there would be a wake in the house. 
And who could begrudge you a drink or even getting drunk if your child had died and it was your, you were waking your child? And on the Wednesday, you would be removing the child from the house, the death house, to the church for the removal. And you'd be leaving your child in the hospital, in the, in the, in the, in the church, all on his own. And who could deny you a drink on a night like that? The next day, the Thursday, would be the funeral. And who could deny you a drink on the Thursday, on the, on, on the day of your child's funeral? Then you'd be into the weekend, it'd be Friday. And actually, if you think about it, who could begrudge you a drink for the next month your child had just died? And I looked at him. I said, oh, Jesus, how could anybody share something like that in front of 50 people? Uh, <laughs> but it was exactly the things that I had been thinking myself. Now, as Charlie said, and as I'm saying now, my child never died and I never wished him to die. But, but that wasn't the way my thinking was. My thinking was so warped at the time that these are the thoughts I had. And I said to myself, well, after this meeting, everybody is going to ostracize Charlie. They're not going to go near him. They're not going to talk to him. <laughs> everybody went up and shook his hand at the end of the meeting. I couldn't believe it. I said, what a fucking thing to share in front of people. What a, how could you share anything worse than that? I've heard worse since, by the way. But, but, but I... I, I identified immediately with Charlie. Charlie was 10 years sober at the time. And um, he, was, he was a great old uh, guy. He, he shared very well. And he shared from the heart, as, as an old sponsor of mine used to, uh, said once. And he shared exactly what I was thinking. And after the meeting, a guy called Paddy came over. He was a window cleaner, Paddy. And uh, some of you might know him. And um, Paddy came over and said, we're having the tear now. And we had a big pot, the usual big pot you get in the hospital. And we went out to the kitchen and we put about 50 tea bags into the pot. And we had we, we cut the tea and we drank it. I think we had a jar of coffee there that we used to keep for Americans that came over once in a blue moon, you know, so give them a cup of coffee. We had tea. We had tea. And we chatted there for about an hour. And then I said, well, I said to Paddy, Paddy, kept, he kept talking to me. And I said, well, what do I do now? He just said, well, just keep coming back. Just keep coming back, he said. And that's exactly what I did. I kept coming back to the meetings. I didn't hear many um, of what people did once they got sober. I only heard the drunkologues. Now, I don't know whether they talked about what they did when they got sober. I don't know if they did that or not. But all I can remember is the drunkologues. And the meetings were an hour and a half. And the first half hour to 40 minutes was the guy sharing like I'm sharing now. And they all shared worse things than Charlie had said. They, I mean, they killed people in car crashes, children, they drove over them. They left people with their family without money. They did this. And, and then they said, and then we came to AA. And they, did, they never told us, they, I, at least I never heard what they did in AA, only that they just kept coming back. And that's what I did. I just kept coming back. And uh, I was told, I was told at the time not to do anything big, no big changes for two years. I believe it's one year. But at the time, I, I don't know whether I misheard, but I heard it was two years. So I waited two years and I sold my share in the business and I moved to Westport and I lived there for 11 years. I, I've, um, I've done a lot since I got sober. The biggest thing recently is when I was 18, 19 years sober, I, I was in Bangkok at the convention, at the roundup, as we call it. And there was a guy sharing there from uh, Los Angeles, one of the main speakers. And he said that in Los Angeles, every week, 
Now, he said it might not be people that live in Las, Las, Las Vegas, Las Vegas, he said, but people that were in Las Vegas every week, there are two, at least two people with 20 years sobriety that go back out and drink. And I said, well, fuck me, I'm 18 years sober. That's, that could be me soon, you know. So I decided I went at the time, I think I had sponsored two or three people and it never worked out. It never worked out over the years. I went back into my local meeting and I shared that I was, an I was an atheist, that I didn't believe anything else. Only myself was keeping me sober with the help of the people in the rooms and with the help of the steps and everything. But it was myself that was basically doing it. There was no God helping me. There was no Jesus Christ. And within a month, I was sponsoring two women. One woman was 20 years sober at the time or something. And she hadn't got a sponsor because there was no women with more time. And she wanted someone with more time in Bangkok. And, and she fell out with a sponsee and that sponsee came to me. So I was, share, I was sponsoring those two. And I was sponsoring a man with two years more sobriety than me as well. And, since, and after that, I sponsored another four people at the same time. They all came to me because I told them. And, and most of the people believed in Jesus Christ, keeping them sober. But they still came to me. And I think it was because I got really honest in the room. I didn't just go with the banter anymore. I didn't just say what people say automatically as a matter of course. I told my truth and people listened to it and they liked what they heard. I, I believe anybody can stay sober in AA any way they want to. If they believe that Jesus or God is keeping them sober, good. That's what's keeping them sober. It's not what's keeping me sober. And what I will say is what I did to keep sober, what I believe in keeps me sober. And I won't say anything about what anybody else says. It's up to them. If it works for them, that's fine. But I'll tell people what keeps me sober. And, and, and I've, I've changed um, direction on that over the years because I need different things to keep me sober. I've gone over my time, Mark. Thank you, everyone, for listening to me.